Thank you, choir and Bill and Miss Jeannie for leading in worship. I think I'm going to get feedback. If <laughs> I may have to turn this off. You'll turn that one off. All right. All right. Let's try. Let's try that. Maybe I'm too close. Here, let's move this down. There we go. That's better. Don't know how it's going to sound when I get to hollering at y'all, but it'll. Uh, <laughs> but. Um, yeah, <laughs> I, I can still holler. Uh, well, let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin our time of study today. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning knowing that your word is true. Lord, that you have spoken to us uh, in words of life. Lord, these words, they are like the creative words that you spoke way back in Genesis 1 when you created this world and caused this world to come to be out of nothing. Lord, they cause these words that we read today, they cause life to come out of darkness. They cause a stone, a stony heart to turn into a heart of flesh. They cause obedience where disobedience was only found. So, Father, as we come to understand who you are better through our study of your word, Lord, I pray that you would point us in the way that we should go. And that we would indeed see change in our lives as a result of our better understanding of your word. Father, as I teach today, Lord, I pray that you would use the words that I say to encourage and build up. Lord, the, the study that we do today is, is, is deep and, and may at times be difficult to understand. And I pray that you would give us each understanding as we uh, desire to know you more. Father, bless us now as we study from your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. This morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to look at just a few verses in Genesis chapter 2 as we begin to transition in my series that I've been working through on the doctrine of worship delight that I've called Delighting in the Triune God. And so far we've been answering the questions of who it is that we worship and why we worship. And really, if you want to consider those questions as kind of foundational, they, they provide the foundation of a kind of a right understanding of worship, of kind of this temple or house of worship that we want to understand as we work through this idea of what worship is. But now we move to kind of more practical understanding of worship. And really, the question that I want to ask and start to answer today is the question that began my thought on this worship series that we've been doing. And that is, what is worship? If you had to define worship for somebody, what would you say worship is? Now, we often, uh, as I said at the very beginning of this series, we typically give a definition for worship that is usually very limited. In, in fact, most of the time what we define worship to be is really just the song service. Um, in, in many churches today, they even divide their worship service that way. We have praise and worship and then we have the sermon. But I said at the very beginning of this series that the worship is so much more than that. So what we're going to do today is we're going to begin to answer the question of what worship is. And the best way that I know to do that, if you're going to define a word, 
One of the best ways to define a word, to define a word, is to look at how it's used, right? I mean, if you want to understand how a word, uh, what a word means, then look at how people are using that word. And so there are two ways that I want to approach the definition of worship. One is, and this is good for you to know if you want to just do a Bible study on a particular word and, and look at the, uh, do what we call a word study. Um, you, there are two ways that you can do that. First, you can look at the first way that the word is used. If you go all the way back to the first way a word is used, then usually you kind of get a good starting point for what the word means. And the second thing that you can do is look at all of the ways that the word is used. So to do that, though, we can't just use the English word that we have for worship. Now, if you, if you don't know, the Bible was originally written in Hebrew and Greek. The Old Testament is written in the language of Hebrew, which was the language of the Hebrews or the Jews that were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And the New Testament is written in Greek. So the reason that's important is sometimes when we translate a word into English, a Hebrew word into English, we don't always translate it as the same word. So you'll see that today as we get into this first Hebrew word that we're going to look at for worship. And before we do that, though, I, I need to kind of preface this with, um, with a considerable chasm that exists between the biblical way of thinking about our existence as human beings and the way we as Americans think about our existence and who we are and how we define our lives. Because the way the Bible talks about worship gets to the very core of who we are as human beings. So what I mean by that is that most Americans, whether we're Christian or Jewish or Muslim or atheist or whatever our, our strain of existence is, most Americans have a basic philosophy of life that I would call existentialist libertarianism. Now, when I say that, you're going to be like, well, Nathan, stop using these big words. We're already confused enough and we're already going to be confused enough. But let me just explain what I mean by those two words, existentialist libertarianism. First, most Americans believe that we are autonomous. Now, when we say the word autonomous, what we the word literally means self-law or self-determining. So we believe that we determine our own existence. We define who we are. We define the, the terms of our own existence. And second, most Americans believe that we are and that we should be free from all restraints, whether they're legal or corporate or even religious. No one has a right to make any demands upon our lives. So let me just give you three cultural references that prove this out. So from the, the sphere of pop culture, there are a number of songs, any number of songs that you can go to that give you this idea of everyone 
determining their own path in life. If you look at rap music, if you look at rock music, if you look at country music, all uh, most uh, genres of music talk about in one way or another the fact that we all define our own existence in this life. So consider just one example, and I almost hate to use this example because I love Casey Musgrave. I like her music. I like the way she sings. I like the fact that she's uh, old school country, even though she's a young new artist. But she has a country music song called Follow Your Arrow. And the second verse of that song says, if you don't go to church, you'll go to hell. If you're the first one on the front row, you're a self-righteous son of a, and she doesn't say the word, but she, she goes on to say, can't win for losing. You'll just disappoint them. Just cause you can't beat them don't mean you should join them. So make lots of noise, kiss lots of boys, or kiss lots of girls if that's something you're into. When the straight and narrow gets a little too straight, roll up a joint or don't. Just follow your arrow wherever it points. Second, not only is this an issue for pop culture, but it's also an issue for our government and our legal culture, our legal precedent. In his majority opinion on a case known as Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which determined that a woman has a legal right to an abortion because she has a right to self-determination, Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, the meaning of the universe. Now, of course, we can easily look at the issue of homosexuality or the issue of abortion and we can say, absolutely, I can see how bad things have gotten in the fact that we think we can define our own existence or we're self-determining. But to be honest, we Christians are just as guilty of this here in America. We too swim in the cultural waters that we recognize to be a problem when it comes to homosexuality or to abortion. In fact, it, it, it surrounds us like a fish in a bowl of water. Aristotle gave the example of a fish in a bowl of water to say how badly culture affects a human. And he said, you know, a fish doesn't know he's wet. A fish swims around in the water and he doesn't know, perceive what the water is doing to him. And like that, we Christians in an American culture, we don't know that we're wet. We don't know just how badly we have accepted this idea of self-determination and uh, self uh, or absolute freedom. But let me give you a couple of examples of how this even affects us as Christians. We, thankfully, and I notice uh, nobody really, it doesn't appear, chose to wear a mask today because we're out of the mask mandate now. But if you just think back to just a week ago or just a couple of days ago and, and how viscerally people reacted against anyone, whether they be a government official or business owner, telling us that we have to wear a mask. And most of the reasons that I heard for why one person or another didn't want to wear a mask didn't revolve at all around health concerns. They were issues with 
People not telling me what I have to do. People not telling me that I should do something because I have total freedom. We also see it in the way that we live and act and think in the church. Because if you think about the way we churches are told to react to people that come into our churches, nowadays churches are so worried about appealing to people and to their own self-interest. Because we have decided and we have said that the, re- that the, the individual is the ultimate determining factor in life that I get to define what I like and what I want and the church itself better mold to my desires or I'll go somewhere else. The preacher better preach like I want. The song service better be in the order that I want. You better use the instruments I want. You better say the things I want or I'll go somewhere else because I am the determining factor in my life. Preacher, you better not say anything particular to my sin. And brother or sister, you better not point out my failings in this life because what does the Bible say? Judge not that you be not judged, right? So leave me alone to live my own existence and determine my own path in this life. And guess what? We as Christians are no better than Casey Musgrave or Anthony Kennedy because we swim in the same waters and say the same things and judge our lives by the same standards that the world does. And this is why the Bible can be very difficult for us to understand, not to mention obey. The Bible is written with a totally different mindset. The Bible reveals that we are not self-determining and we are not absolutely free. We have to understand this if we're going to understand what the Bible means when it speaks of worship. So to see this, let's let's start by reading Genesis chapter two, verses five through 17. Genesis chapter two, verses five through 17. God's word says, when no bush of the field was yet in the land. And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, In the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to the water to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishom. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havalah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. 
The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So, from this passage, I want you to understand, and this is, if you want to um, write anything down, if you're taking notes today, this is kind of the, the main point of the sermon. Uh, so, if you want to, the main thing that I want you to understand from the sermon today is that worship is the act of aligning the whole of our lives under the rule of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Worship is the act of aligning the whole of our lives under the rule of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, there are two Hebrew words that the English Bible translates into the word that we use, the word worship. Today, I want to look at the first Hebrew word for worship, the first word that ever appears in the Bible that we translate into worship, and that is the word abad, A-B-A-D. This word is used right here in this passage that we just read. It's used twice in the passage that we just read. Let's see if you can find it. It's in verses 5 and in verses 15. You see the word worship there, verse 5 and verse 15? No, you don't see the word worship there, right? Your translation may have the word work, or it may say, I think the King James Version says dress in verse 15. Now, this, this is the Hebrew word abide, where it says work or dress. Now, your first reaction to that might be to think, now, preacher, you're trying to pull a fast one on me because my work is different than my worship. But actually, I want to suggest that you would be dead wrong to assume that. And I want to show you four different ways that this word, abad, is used in the Bible that help us to understand what worship is. First, abad means that we, as God's creation, are obligated. We, as God's creation, are obligated. We see that clearly in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. It says that God put man in the garden to what? To work and keep it. Now, Moses writes that God put man in the garden to work and keep the garden. And I'm sorry to spoil it for you, uh, but I'm sorry to spoil your idea of paradise or heaven. But God has always created us to work. Work is not a part of of the curse. Toilsome work is, working in your garden with weeds is part of the curse, but satisfying, meaningful work is not. God created Adam in part to tend the garden. God commanded the Israelites to work. If you think about the fourth commandment, the commandment of uh, observing the Sabbath, think about what is implied in that commandment. For six days you shall what? Work, right? God says work is a legitimate thing for the Israelites to do six days out of every week. Work is an act of worship because our good work brings glory to God. 
as we make a a beautiful piece of furniture or as we provide health care to someone in need or as we deliver raw goods to a mill or as we plant a garden, we bring glory to God, the God who made us with the gifts and the talents that we have and we benefit the world with our work. Second, abad means that we as God's creation are owned. We as God's creation are obligated and we as God's creation are owned. You see this in the way God establishes the garden. He establishes it with rules and he establishes it with boundaries. And he sets these boundaries and these tasks that mankind is to follow. Man is to work as a servant of God. In fact, the word abad is often translated in our English Bibles to mean Slavery or enslavement. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 1, verse 13, it says that the nation of Egypt abod or enslaved the Hebrews. Now, this is certainly an uncomfortable fact for us because we have a very long and sad history in America of slavery. But we also love our freedoms. We love to know that we are free here in America But whether we're legally free or not, the Bible states one hard truth about our spiritual condition. You are either a servant of God or a servant of Satan. You are either a servant of God or a servant of Satan. There's a scene, uh, just a side note here, but uh, one of my favorite movies is Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? I don't know if y'all have ever seen that movie, but in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, there are three characters that are on the run from the law, and two of them end up getting baptized. And the third one, George Clooney, you know, thinks it's ridiculous. But George Clooney and these two other guys get in this car with this black guy that has said that he sold his soul to the devil so that he knows how to play the guitar now. And uh, George Clooney's character says, well, it appears that I'm the only one who's currently unaffiliated. You know, in other words, he hasn't aligned with Jesus or the devil. That's a wrong view. That's kind of the joke of the of the line is that actually in be saying that you're unaffiliated, you're affiliated. You are either a servant of God or you're a servant of Satan. Titus chapter 3 verse 3 tells us that those who are outside of Christ are slaves to their passion. John 8 34 says, Jesus says, whoever, whoever sins is a slave to sin. Now I've heard so many young people say that they don't want to commit to Christ because they want to be, quote, free to do what they want to do for a little while before they commit. You know, you might think that you're free. You might think that you're able to live life by your own standards and enjoy the things of this world. And then someday you'll come to Christ and you'll commit and you'll settle down and all of that. But the things that you enjoy in life, those things that you say are enjoying life, they will later be regrets that you cannot rid yourself of. You cannot escape the consequences of your sin. You were made to be a servant of God. And whether you acknowledge it or not, He owns you. Third, abod means that we as God's creation 
are called to obedience. So we're obligated, we're owned, and we're called to obedience. We find that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. God gives Adam a command that he is called to obey. Now this doesn't just establish that God is the master and Adam is the servant, but it also gets at this idea of a king and his subject. In fact, you'll notice that the punishment for disobeying God in that command is what? Death. A king is the type of ruler that executes that type of judgment. In 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 21, it says that the nations abode or served Solomon. So not only were we created to be servants to God, but we were created to be obedient to the rule of our one and only true king. Finally, abad means that we, as God's creation, should give him homage. The last way that the word abad is used in the Old Testament is in reference to our worship. So Exodus chapter 3 verse 12 God promises Moses that he will bring the people out of Egypt that they may abide him, or your translation will translate it as serve him on the mountain. In the second commandment, God commands the people not to make idols and abide or serve them. And in Psalm chapter 72, verse 11, the psalmist looks forward to the day when all nations will abide or serve God. So this is what worship is. And it's very obviously not the way of the world. After the fall of Adam, all of humanity was brought under the rule of sin. So God warns Cain in Genesis chapter 4 that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to rule over you. And it ultimately did. And from Cain to the people of Babel, sin ruled over humanity. Even in the chosen people of Israel, sin reigned. As soon as they had crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, they looked back and they cried out that they would rather return to their slavery in Egypt than follow a pillar of fire around in the wilderness. They served other gods, all the while paying homage to Jehovah in the temple service. Services, excuse me. It seemed that no one could be set free from the reign of sin. And yet Jesus did what the rest of humanity could not do. He lived in complete obligation to his father. He says in John chapter 9, verse 4, I must do the works of him who sent me while it is still day. He also lived under the complete authority of God. So Philippians 2, 5 through 7 says that he became a slave, quite literally became a slave in obedience to his father. Jesus was also completely obedient to his father. When tempted by Satan to bow down and worship him as the king of the world, Jesus responded instead in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10 by saying, you shall not worship the Lord. Uh, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. You see, friend, because Jesus has righteously served God in your place, He has given back to God the obedience that you could not. 
Jesus has proven that he is the only true and right ruler of this world by rising again from the dead. And he calls you to trust in him. Remember, you're a slave. You will either be a slave to Satan and to sin or you'll be a slave to Christ. But it is Christ alone who is the good king and the good master that has created you and has died to save you. He he even says that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Won't you turn from your slavery to sin and turn to Christ today? Brothers and sisters, we are called to worship God by aligning the whole of our lives under the rule of Christ. This means that every aspect of our lives should be brought under the rule of Christ. From the way we raise our children, to the way we interact with our bosses or the way we treat our employees, to the way we work, to what we even choose to do for our work. And yes, even our retirement, even our leisure, even our vacations are to be under the rule of Christ. They're to bring glory to God as we serve Him. Everything we do, down to the smallest of things, is either an act of obedience or disobedience to our King. Young people, don't take the modern philosophy. Don't gobble up the modern philosophy that you hear on TV and maybe even from those in your family that says that you should choose a career based solely on the money that it can make for you. No, choose a career that can glorify God and serve your fellow man. Choose it first because it is your calling, because it is something you are gifted to do, because it is what God has made you to do. And then God will add the money. God will care for you as you carry out your calling in this life. Adults, we should bring every part of our lives into obedience to God. And so we should see our work and our leisure as an opportunity to bless God. We should work well. We should bless others. We should be generous. Even with the things that we do as a hobby, we should do them to the glory of God. Retirees, don't think that you're retiring to do something you've always wanted to do, but rather find new work that brings glory to God. Serve the community, serve the church, serve your family, make something beautiful, give to others. You know, I was trying to think, and and we'll flesh this out a whole lot more as we get into the rest of my sermon series, but I was trying to think of a way that, just a, a silly little way that this applies, and it's not hard to think of. You know, some people, when I, when I say this kind of thing, when I say that all of our lives is to be under the Lordship of Christ, they might, you might think, well, does that mean I just need to go into a monastery? Does that mean I just need to give up my love for sports or my love for Netflix or whatever it is? But just let me give you one really easy, brief example of what I mean. 
Does the Lord, uh, can I glorify the Lord at a baseball game? Can I glorify the Lord either as a spectator or as a baseball player at a baseball game? As a baseball player, it's not that hard to see. You play to the best of your ability. You, you listen to the umpire. You don't show out and you don't do things for your own glory. You do them for the good of others. That's pretty easy. But what about as a spectator? Because I don't know if you've been to a baseball game, but we ain't the best Christians at a baseball game. What about at a baseball game? Am I free to say whatever I want at a baseball game because it's not church? Am I free to... Uh, fuss about the way the ump is acting or the way the coach is coaching or the way the fans are, are, are around me? Am I free to antagonize those around me so that we almost get into a fight? Am I free to do that? Or am I obligated? Am I owned by a master who expects me to live in obedience to him wherever I am? Even in our leisure, even in the things that we Enjoy that seems so frivolous and meaningless in the grand scheme of things, we can bring those, even those things, under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Our calling is to live the whole of our lives as an act of worship to God because He is our Master, He is our King. And so everything we do ultimately is a reflection on Him. And so we should work we should act, and we should even take it easy in light of who God is and what He calls us to do. Let's close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is not often a difficult thing for us to do to, in, in such a free country where we do enjoy great freedoms that are provided ultimately by You. Lord, it's hard for us to uh, disassociate that, that freedom that we enjoy as citizens of the U.S. from our, our um, servanthood in your kingdom. So, Father, I pray that we as Christians, we would live in, by the light of a different kingdom, not by the light of the kingdoms of this world who say that we define our own existence and we uh, determine our own path and we ultimately are radically free from any obligation that might be placed on us. But rather, may we live differently than this world. May we not respond in the way that so many do when we are faced with uh, an angry uh, fan or a uh, 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 difficult coach or uh, employer that is heavy-handed. May we not respond in the way that uh, a, a regular American citizen would, but rather may we respond as one who is under a different kingdom and serving a different king. Father, may we live in obedience to you even when it's hard, even when the world thinks that we're crazy because we do not act out as they would. Father, may we be witnesses to you and, and see our lives, the total sum of our lives in every aspect of it, as an act of worship to you because you alone are worthy of it. Father, bless us now as we close this time of, prayer, this time of worship with one last song. May we go from this place ready to serve you as we take this message to a lost and dying world. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.